0: Introduction of Dove in the Eagle's Nest. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Justice. Dove in the Eagle's Nest by Charlie Mary Young. Introduction. In sending forth this little book, I am inclined to add a few explanatory words as to the use I have made of historical personages. The origin of the whole story was probably Freytag's first series of pictures of German life. Probably, I say, for its first commencement was a dream, dreamt some weeks after reading that most interesting collection of sketches. The return of the squire, with the tidings of the death of the two knights, was vividly depicted in sleep, and though without local habitation or name, the scene was most likely to have been a reflection from the wild scene so lately read of. In fact, waking thoughts decided that such a catastrophe could hardly have happened anywhere but in Germany, or in Scotland, and the contrast between the cultivation in the free cities and the savagery of the independent barons made the former the more suitable region for the adventures. The time could only be before the taming and bringing into order of the empire, when the imperial cities were in the greatest splendor, the last free nobles in course of being reduced from their lawless liberty. And the house of Austria beginning to acquire its preponderance over the other princely families. M. Freytag's books, Hegavitz, History of Maximilian, will I think be found fully to bear out the picture I have tried to give of the state of things in the reign of the Emperor Friedrich the Third, when for one of any other law, Faust Reip or Fis right ruled, i.e., an offended nobleman, having once sent a feta brief to his adversary was thenceforth at liberty to revenge himself by a private war and which for the wrong inflicted no justice was exacted hegevich remarks that the only benefit of this custom was that the honour of subscribing a feud brief was so highly esteemed that it induced the nobles to learn to write the league of st george and the swabbing league were the means of gradually putting down this authorised condition of deadly feud this was in the days of Maximilian's youth. He is a prince who seems to have been almost as inferior in his foreign to what he was in his domestic policy as was Queen Elizabeth. He is chiefly familiar to us as failing to keep up his authority in Flanders after the death of Mary of Burgundy, as lingering to fulfill his engagement with Anne of Brittany till he lost her and her duchy, as incurring ridicule by his ill-managed schemes in Italy. In the vast projects that he was always forming without either means or steadiness to carry them out. By his perpetual impecuniosity and slippery dealing, and in his old age he has become rather the laughing-stock of historians. But there is much that is melancholy in the sight of a man endowed with genius, unbalanced by the force of character that secures success, and with an ardent nature whose intention overleapt obstacles that in practice he found insuperable at home maximilian raised the imperial power from a mere cipher to considerable weight we judge him as if he had been born in the purple and succeeded to a defined power like his descendants we forget that the head of the holy roman empire had been ever since the extinction of the swabian line a mere mark for ambitious princes to shoot at with everything expected from him and no means to do anything maximilian's own father was an avaricious undignified old man not until near his death archduke of even all austria and with anarchy prevailing everywhere under his nominal rule it was in the time of maximilian that the empire became as compact and united a body as could be hoped of anything so unwieldy that law was at least acknowledged false forever abolished and the emperor became once more a real power the man under whom all this was effected could have been no fool yet as he said himself he reigned over a nation of kings who each chose to rule for himself and the uncertainty of supplies of men or money to be gained from them made him so often fail necessarily in his engagements that he acquired a shiftiness and callousness to breaches of promise which became the worst flaw in his character but of the fascination of his manner there can be no doubt even henry the eighth's english ambassadors when forced to own how little they could depend on him and how dangerous it was to let subsidies pass through his fingers still show themselves under a sort of enchantment of devotion to his person and this in his old age and when his conduct was most inexcusable and provoking his variety of powers was wonderful he was learned in many languages in all those of his empire or hereditary states and in many besides and he had an ardent love of books both classical and modern. He delighted in music, painting, architecture, and many arts of more mechanical description. Wrote treatises on all of these, and on other subjects, especially gardening and gunnery. He was an inventor of an improved lock to the arquebus, and first divined how to adapt the disposition of his troops to the use of newly discovered firearms. And in all these things his versatile head and ready hand were personally employed, not by deputy, while coupled with so much artistic taste was a violent passion for hunting, which carried him through many hairbreadth escapes. It was plain he used to say that God Almighty ruled the world, or how could things go on with a rogue like Alexander the Sixth at the head of the Church, and a mere huntsman like himself at the head of the Empire? His bon mots were numerous, all thoroughly characteristic, and showing that brilliancy in conversation must have been one of his greatest charms it seems as if only self-control and resolution were wanting to have made him a charles or an alfred the great the romance of his marriage with the heiress of burgundy is one of the best-known parts of his life he was scarcely two-and-twenty when he lost her who perhaps would have given him the stability he wanted but his tender love for her endured through life it is not improbable that it was still this abiding attachment that made him slack in overcoming difficulties in the way of other contracts and that he may have hoped that his engagement to bianca sforza would come to nothing like so many others the most curious record of him is however in two books the materials for which he furnished and whose composition and illustration he superintended the Weise king and theredank of both of which he is well known to be the hero the white or the wise king it is uncertain which is a history of his education and exploits and prose Every alternate page has its engraving, showing how the young white king obtains instruction in painting, architecture, language, and all arts and sciences, the latter including magic, which he learns of an old woman with a long-tailed demon sitting, like Mother Hubbard's cat on her shoulder, and astrology. In the illustration of this study, an extraordinary figure of a cross within a circle appears in the sky, which probably has some connection with his scheme of nativity, for it also appears on the breast of Aranhold his constant companion in the metrical history of his career under the name of theredinck the poetry of theredinck was composed of maximilian's old writing-master Tisny, but the adventures were the kaiser's own communicated by himself and he superintended the woodcuts. the name is explained to mean craving glory glory mimo. the germans laughed to scorn a french translator who rendered it "sire merci it was annotated very soon after its publication and each exploit explained and accounted for. It is remarkable and touching in a man who married at eighteen and was a widower at twenty-two that, in both books, the happy union with his lady-love is placed at the end, not at the beginning of the book. And in Therodink, at least, the eternal reunion is clearly meant. In this curious book, Koenig Ram is seen on his back dying in a garden, and Aaron Rees, as Mary really did, dispatches a ring to summon her betrothed. But here Therodink returns for answer that he means first to win honor by his exploits, and sets out with his comrade, Aronhold, in search thereof. Aronhold never appears of the smallest use to him in any of the dire adventures into which he falls, but only stands complacently by, and in effect may represent fame, or perhaps that literary sage whom Don Quixote always supposed to be at hand to record his deeds of progress. Next, we are presented with the German impersonation of Satan as a wise old magician, only with claws instead of feet, commissioning his three captains, Poplatern, Fervis, Umfala, and Nidelhard, to beset and ruin Thardink. They are interpreted as dangers of youth, middle life, and old age, rashness, disaster, and distress, or envy. One at a time they encounter him, not once, but again and again. He is ranged under each head, an entire contempt of real order of time the perils he thinks owing to each foe fair Witz most justly gets the credit of maximilian's perils on the steeple of Ulm, though unfortunately the artist has represented the daring climber as standing not much above the shoulders of fair Witz and erinhold and although the annotation tells us that his hinder half-foot overhung and scaffold the danger in the print is not appalling fair Witz likewise inveigles him into putting the point schnabel of a shoe into the wheel of a mill for turning stone balls where he certainly hardly deserved to lose nothing but the beak of his shoe this enemy also brings him into numerous unpleasant predicaments on precipices where he hangs by one hand while the chamois stand delighted on every available peak fairvice grins malevolently and arenhol stands pointing at him over his shoulder time and place are given in the notes for all these escapes after some twenty adventures, Fair is beaten off, and on follow, tries his powers. Here the misadventures do not involve so much folly on the hero's part, though to be sure he ventures into a lion's den unarmed, and has to beat off the inmates with a shovel. But the other adventures are more rational. He catches a jester of admirably foolish expression, putting a match to a powder magazine. He is wonderfully preserved in mountain avalanches and hurricanes, Rains up his horse on the verge of an abyss. Falls through ice and holland and shows nothing but his head above it. Cures himself of a fever by draughts of water. To the great disgust of his physicians. And escapes a fire bursting out of a tall stove. Nidohart brings his real battles and perils. From this last he is in danger of shipwreck, of assassination, of poison. In single combat or in battle. Tumults of the people beset him. He is imprisoned as as against. But finally Nidelhard is beaten back, and the hero is presented to Ironrich. Ironhold recounts his triumphs, and accuses the three captains. One is hung, another beheaded, the third thrown headlong from a tower, and a guardian angel then summons Theradank to his union with his queen. No doubt this reunion was the life dream of the harassed, busy, inconsistent man, who flashed through the turmoils of the early 16th century. The adventures of Maximilian, which have been averted to in this story, are all to be found in Thuridink, and in his early life he was probably the brilliant, eager person we have tried to some degree to describe. In his latter years, it is well known that he was much struck by Luther's arguments, and indeed he had long been conscious of need of church reform, though his plans took the grotesque form of getting himself made pope and taken all into his own hands. Perhaps it was unwise to have ever so faintly sketched Ebbo's career through the ensuing troubles, but the history of the star and of the spark in the stubble seemed to need completion, and the working out of the character of the survivor was unfinished till his course had been thought over from the dawn of the Wittenberg teaching, which must have seemed so novelty to an heir of the doctrine of Toller, and of the veritably Catholic divines of old times. The ideas of the supposed course of a thoughtful, refined, conscientious man through the earlier times of the Reformation, glad of the hope of cleansing the Church, but hoping to cleanse, not to break away from her, a hope that Luther himself long cherished, and which was not entirely frustrated till the reassembly at Trent in the next generation. Justice has never been done to the men who feared to lose their hold on the Church Catholic as the one body to which promises were made. Their loyalty has been treated as blindness, timidity, or superstition. But that there were many such persons, and those among the very highest minds of their time, no one can have any doubt after reading such lies as those of Friedrich, the wise of Saxony, of Erasmus, of Vittoria Colonna, or of Cardinal Goistiniani. April 9, 1836 End of Introduction